All right. Well, listen, we are in a series going through the book of Acts together, and we're, we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 19 today. And so if you got your Bible or your YouVersion Bible on your phone, whatever that looks like for you, turn to Acts 19. And uh, we're going to be we're going to be talking about Paul uh, arriving in the city of Ephesus. It's kind of uh, the same word when we talk about the book of Ephesians. It's the same people. The people that lived in Ephesus were known as the Ephesians. And so before we get started, let me just give you just a little bit of background. Um, Ephesus was, at this time, the, the richest city in the richest region of the Roman Empire. It was a port city, which means it was right on the coast. So all all trade that was coming into that, that part of Asia had to go through Ephesus. The largest library at that time was housed in Ephesus. It was said to contain over 12,000 scrolls, which was a big deal back in the day. Um, one of the largest temples in the Roman world was, was in Ephesus. It was called the Temple of Artemis. Artemis is the Greek goddess of the hunt, the moon, and childbirth. Don't ask me how you get all three of those together. Um, but uh, her temple was like uh, almost twice the size of the Parthenon in, in Athens. So it's huge, absolutely just huge. And there's still kind of remnants and <clears throat> parts of it kind of there in Ephesus if you ever want to go see it. And um, so it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So trade, tourism, all that kind of stuff was really big in 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 Ephesus, and it's into this culture now that Paul enters. And uh, we're going to read a portion of it uh, and, and, and talk a little bit about it today. Um, I love this portion of scripture. It is crazy, the kind of cool stuff that, that happens just in these few verses that we're going to talk about today. So Acts chapter 19, why don't you stand with me as we get into God's word and we honor it. Um, so <clears throat> we're going to start here in verse 11, just so you know. Um, what's happened before this is Paul arrives in Ephesus. He is preaching hard in the lecture hall of Tyrannus um, for almost two years. He's in Ephesus. He's preaching. The Bible says that pretty much everyone who lived in the province of Asia had now heard the word of the Lord. And this was through Paul and his, 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 his boys, his guys, his people that were um, a part of his entourage were preaching hard. And anyone, if you lived in the province of Asia, you pretty much had heard about Jesus, heard the word of the Lord. And God was moving in undeniable ways. And so what we're going to take a look at today is what God can do and then what man attempts to do and screws up. One is revival, or just vival, I don't know, like God just shows up, and then one is religion. And so we're going to kind of look at those two things contrasted together. Um, Acts chapter 19, verse 11 says this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? 
Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them like a spider monkey and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house, catch this, naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor, I bet. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you always show up. I thank you that when we proclaim your word, um, it does not come back void. And so I firmly believe that this morning as we look at your word today, that it does not come back void in our lives. I pray that you would mold us, make us, break us to look more like you. I pray we'd be receptive to your Holy Spirit today, that we would hear the word of the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So, um, like I said, this, this, like, just this portion of Scripture is, is crazy. Uh, chapter 19, there's these essentially different accounts that are juxtaposed, meaning like there's kind of this contrast between, you know, what was happening with Paul with the sweaty headbands and aprons and what was happening with the seven sons of Sceva. And so we see what it looks like to, to experience a move of God, and then we see what, what happens when man manipulates that and tries to make it into something that it's not. Because what we know to be true is that whenever God creates, Satan distorts. We see this in Adam and Eve. We see this all the way from the Garden of Eden up till today. Whatever God creates, Satan begins to distort. And one of the strategies that Satan uses is to distort our relationship with God by replacing it with religion. Let me say that again. One of the ways that Satan uses is to distort our relationship with God by replacing it with religion. And so we go from this like love affair with the creator of the universe and it, it's, it's this fade, it's this slow fade. If not kept in check, we, we, we fade into religion. And so rather than being worshipers of an all creator God, we attempt to use God for our own personal pleasures or pursuits. And this, uh, it, this is just kind of how things work. If we don't stay tender, if we don't stay um, focused on our relationship with God, we will um, go down the road of, of religion. It happens time and time again. It's the temptation of every single one of us. Um, <clears throat> so look at what God was doing in verse 11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Just catch what, what was happening here. It says that it gives an example of some of the extraordinary miracles. It says, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured. People were being freed from illnesses and evil spirits left them. I mean, this is, this is intense, right? Like this is stuff that, um, well, let's be clear. There's no historical or theological foundation for holy handkerchiefs. Or deliverance aprons, right? There's, there's, there's nothing there. Like Jesus, there's no, there, we don't see Jesus mailing out sweatbands saying like even his sweat will, will heal people. Um, 
So this wasn't a thing. I just want you to understand this. It's important. It's not to say that it's, I'm, I'm not diminishing it or, or minimizing it. I'm just saying that this wasn't a thing. This wasn't a practice. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what about the woman with the issue of blood, right? Like, I mean, because she, in, 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 a, in a desperation, reaches for Jesus's, the hem of Jesus's garment as he's walking through a crowd of people. She touches his clothing and is healed. It's kind of like that, right? I mean, it's kind of like a, the apron or the handkerchief. But, but I want us to understand that this was not a recipe that Jesus taught for healing. He wasn't like, people weren't cutting the hems off of his garments and like splicing them out and handing them out to people as though this was the new way that you get healed. Just take some of the, the garment or the headband or something that touched Jesus and then that would, be, that, that would suffice. What happens with this woman with the issue of the blood is that she was healed by touching the hem of Jesus' garment, but many times... God uses our faith through a point of contact, right? There's these, it's not a recipe, but, but it is a point of receptivity. It's kind of like this, like, um, so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, it's kind of like that. Like, does it only happen through the laying out of hands? No, but sometimes it does. In fact, many times it does. But it's not a recipe, right? But it is maybe a point of contact for somebody through the laying on of hands that, that someone who received the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout Scripture, but we also see people just being filled with the Holy Spirit and they're not doing anything. Nobody touched them. Nobody laid lay the hands on them, right? God can work in through all, all of, the, of these things. And the point is this, is that we love recipes. God loves relationship. We're always trying to create a recipe out of, well, God did it this way, and this is how he worked back then. And remember back in the 90s, this is what was going on, the gold fillings, the gold, do you remember that? And this, if he works again, this is what it's going to look like. And God's like, what? quit trying to make a recipe out of me showing up. Don't make a recipe out of, the, out of me moving. Like, stay in relationship with me. Because even in our recipe for revival, it can look a whole lot like religion. And, and this is the thing that, that's going on even, even in the book of Ephesus. The thing I love about it as we've been reading through the book of Acts is that I, you watch these people that literally don't know what they're doing, but they're just walking step by step by step in the leading of Jesus, and they're being surprised by him. I love that. May you continually be surprised by God. Can I just encourage you to take a risk and, and, and allow yourself to maybe be surprised. How do you respond when God does something outside of your experience? And you're like, that can't happen. That can't happen. Well, since when was your experience the limiter to God moving? Right? God's saying, I, behold, perceive. Do you, I'm doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? May we maybe be willing to be surprised by God moving in ways that we necessarily haven't always experienced. And this is the beauty of what was happening here. I mean, sweaty handkerchiefs and aprons are being sent to people and they're being healed. This was not a recipe for it, but it was just happening. God was moving, sometimes in spite of what we normally think should happen. Because when we continually are living in the awe of the glory of God, it's a beautiful thing. And, and when we're not, we'll be tempted to use God for our own personal glory. And uh, so this is, what's, this is what's happening in, 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 uh, with the seven sons of Sceva. And some of you have, have read this and heard it before. Verse 13. Some Jews who went around, ran around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So apparently there were um, 
itinerant traveling Jewish exorcists back in the day. Um, and they decided they were maybe having a little bit of a hard time sometimes, you know, struggling. There's seven of them. They go in groups, groups of seven, so you know it's, it's kind of a big deal. Um, they thought it would be a good idea to try to invoke the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And because they'd see Paul and they'd see all kinds of, you know, great success in Paul and his disciples and all these things that were happening, it seemed to work. And so it's interesting to me that we have a move of God breaking out and it does not take long for people to manipulate revival into a ritual. Isn't it interesting? I mean, God's moving. He's doing crazy stuff, sweaty headbands or healing people. Like, what in the world is going on? And it doesn't take very long for man to start saying, oh, I, I got this figured out. I made a recipe for it. And I'm actually going to take this thing, this revival that's happening, and make a ritual out of it. And one of the signs of religion is taking the Lord's name in vain. It's literally the second commandment, right? Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And growing up, I always thought that that meant that you were not supposed to say, oh my God, or Jesus Christ as a swear word. Like, don't take the Lord's name in vain. You know, if you stub your toe, you better not say Jesus Christ. Or, you, you know, if you're, if you're upset, don't say, oh my God. And so we have, we have the, kind of these Christianese things like, you know, oh my gosh, and you know, all these d different types of like almost swears, but they're not Christian, they're, they're Christian swears. We, we kinda, we, we're weird, right? We got these weird like things. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I always used to think that that was that. Now, here's, the, here's my point. Is it dishonoring to the Lord? Is it completely inappropriate? Absolutely. Absolutely, right? But, but, but I want to argue with you today that like maybe the taking the Lord's name in vain isn't just saying God's name when you stub your toe. Maybe a little more clearly, it could mean don't use God's name to leverage you getting something that you want. Don't, don't, don't slap Jesus' name on something as if it were a magic word, right? Just in, in Jesus' name, right, at the end of it, almost kind of like abracadabra. In Jesus' name. Well, we kind of, you know, depending on how you say it, the more emphasis on the wrong syllable, you, you get, you, the more emphasis you put on it, then um, all of a sudden it means more, and God now has to stand up to whatever it is that you pre prefaced that, and now you said the magic word, so God has to do it. Um, right words, wrong spirit. Because saying in Jesus' name is not an incantation. It's not simply an ending to a prayer. When we say in the name of Jesus, it is a reliance on a relationship that draws on the anointing of God. Let me say that again. When we say in the name of Jesus, it is a reliance on a relationship with God that puts a draw on his anointing. Anything outside of that is religion, ritual at best. Because... We see and we read here, right? Like, it's that religion may sound holy and it may sound profound, you know, in Jesus' name. But, but if you ask the sons of Sceva, they will tell you it is powerless to save you. Religion is powerless to save you. Look at what happens to these seven dudes. Let me read it for you. This is a crazy story. Just put yourself, just say like, all right, I'm going to be son number two of Sceva, right? Verse 14 through 15. 
Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. Their dad's a big uppity-up, and they're like going around, itinerant exorcists. They were doing this. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answers them and says that the evil spirit speaks to them and says, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? How crazy is that, that you're trying to go around, you're, you're casting out demons, and you say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches about, leave in Jesus' name, right? And the demon turns to you and asks a clarifying question. I know Jesus, and I know about Paul. He's caused a whole lot of problems for us. But I'm sorry, who, who exactly are you again? <laughs> I, that... I, I, don't know, I don't know about you, but that would be um, a moment of reckoning, at least, right? And the question that, that rolls around in me, and, and, and I hope rolls around in you, is your name known in hell? <laughs> when your feet hit the floor in the morning, does the devil say, oh, crap, she's up, right? <laughs> like, like, do the demons, do the demons like, I'm sorry, I know about Jesus, obviously, and Paul, yeah, he's caused a whole lot of problems for me and all my minion friends, but like, who in the world are you? Because there's power in the name of Jesus, but there's only power in the name of Jesus when it's in relationship with him. Check, check. Oh, I'm on again. It's okay, it happens once a service. <laughs> There's this reality that what we've been saying through the book of Acts is that there is something about the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus carries with it spiritual authority. But a sign of religion is this, assuming authority outside of relationship. A sign of religion is assuming authority outside of relationship. This is what we see with the seven sons of Sceva, right? They're just thinking that Jesus is a magic word. Christian, can I just remind you that your only power is in your relationship with God. It's not in a cross, an amulet. It's not in a piece of jewelry. It's not in your pedigree or your past or what your mama did. It's not in a church service. It's not in a sermon. And it's not even in your gifting. The only power that you have is through your relationship with Jesus, which means this, that the only way that your name is known in hell is if your name is written in heaven. And that only comes through a relationship with Jesus. The only way that your name is known in hell is if it's written in heaven. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 says this. This is the message paraphrase. I'm going to read it a little different. It says this, I can see it now at the final judgment, the words of Jesus, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We, we bashed the demons. Our super spiritual projects had everyone talking. And you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You didn't impress me one bit. You're out of here. I was talking to a friend this week. And I was just, you know, you, I hope you have friends that you can just be honest with and just like, like these are the things that are going on in my heart. And uh, we're just talking about things like, like heart stuff. And I said, you know, and I've said this before to you, I think that look, one of my greatest fears as a, a Christian pastor, right, minister, 
is that I would become a professional Christian, that I would read my word and, and, and talk about Jesus and do things in his name and yet miss him in the midst of ministry. I mean, we can miss him in the midst of going to church and singing songs. Anybody up here can be singing about Jesus and yet missing him in the midst of doing ministry. We talked about it last week that we can, you know, grow weary in the midst of doing good. Like there is this reality that if we are not continually going back to the basics, continually going back to our relationship with God, we will inherently drift towards religion time and time and time again. Verse 16, this is where it gets fun. It says, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So this demon um, over, gives kind of empowers this man with supernatural strength. And the Bible says that he beats all of them until they're bloody and naked. I mean, this is ridiculous. Just imagine, I, can't, I cannot even imagine the, the utter awkwardness of this fight um, and how that went down inside. Um, they literally get the clothes beat off of them, right? Like this is, a, this is embarrassing, hor- horrific all at the same time. And some of you may be thinking, well, like, you know, they did, they did run out. Yes, they were naked and, you know, beaten up. But how do you know that you actually lost, you know? Maybe they had them like a chokehold for like five seconds. Like in Jesus' name, right? They're trying their best, right? Listen, if you enter a fight with your clothes on and you end the fight running into public naked, you lost the fight, dude. Like, it's over. Like, you, you didn't win. Nobody's saying, like, oh, I bet you gave him a run for your money. No, I don't think you did. I don't think you did. All seven of you, like, running through the streets for your life. Like, I, I, think, I think you lost this thing. And as we look at this, which leads me to the, the, another sign of religion, another sign of religion is the appearance of godliness, but lacking the power. They had this appearance of godliness, right? I mean, there's seven sons of Sceva, a chief high priest, and they're invoking the name of Jesus, and they're doing holy stuff, and they have this appearance of godliness. But in, when it comes down to it, they get beaten, literally, their clothes beaten off of them by a demon. Appearance of godliness, but lacking any power therein. And we can remember verse 11 right here. We just read it. Um, God doing amazing works through Paul. Demons literally fleeing at the sight or smell of a holy sweatband. Like they're, they're sending it out. The demons are gone. And then in verse 16, we've got seven guys and a demon giving an epic beat down to every single one of them who thought that Jesus was a magic word. This, uh, this really, it's just sobering as we, as we go through it. And the difference is this, that, that, that with Paul's miracles, God was using godly men for his glory. But with the seven sons of Sceva, they were using God's name for their own glory. With Paul, he had the appearance of something completely commonplace, a sweatband, an apron, yet it held miraculous power. And with the other guys, they had it all propped up with like the appearance of godliness, but lacked any power behind it. Religion. Revival. Now, for some reason, after this epic beatdown, the gospel explodes. Like, people are coming to Jesus, revival begins, it's epic. Verse 17, you can read it for yourself. It says this, they get beat down, run out into the, 
into the streets naked. Um, it says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. The first sign of revival here is that the fear of God is stronger than the fear of man. It's a little odd to me that a revival is birthed out of a demonic fistfight, right? Like, that's odd to me that, like, you know, these guys, this happens, and all of a sudden now revival happens in all of Ephesus. And I was praying about it, and, this, and I was coming to this realization, like, when, when all of a sudden you realize that the battle you're in is not actually, and is actually bigger than the battle you think that you're in, you you stop fearing the power of man and you begin to be in awe of the power of God. I think people all around were all of a sudden realizing like, this is the real deal. These holy men, seven of them, got beat up by a demon because they misused the name of Jesus. We're, we're seeing God moving here and we're seeing the manipulation of man here. I'm gonna stay as far away from this as I can and run as far, as fast as I can towards this. The fear of man just diminishes as we realize the fear of God, the awe of God. Proverbs 29, 25 says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Another sign of revival is this. The name of Jesus is held in honor. Verse 17, the end of it, it says this. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. I bet it was. Seven naked and bloody exorcists screaming through the streets. We'll do that to you. Like, I, I bet when, when people started hearing about this, they're like, the seven, the Skiva dudes? Skiva's boys? What? I bet, I can only imagine the honor that the seven sons of Skiva had for the name of Jesus after that. I, I, I bet that they didn't invoke the name of Jesus anymore, right? That was kind of off limits. Either they become distinct believers in Jesus and began to walk not in religion but in revival, or they just shrunk back and said, I ain't touching this with a 10-foot pole. I'm going to keep doing the other thing, and I'm scared. Or You know what? This isn't even worth it, right? I'm out of the whole demon exorcist thing. I'm, I'm going to maybe work at Walmart. I'm, I'm, I'm out of this thing. And so they're obviously absolutely holding the name of Jesus in high honor because there's something about that name. The name of Jesus either exposes us as frauds or empowers us as family. It either will, will, will just unearth the, the reality that there is no relationship or God will use sweaty headbands and aprons to do his work. That is what amazes me. When God's in it, he can use literally anything and anyone. And when he's not in it, let's just say, it is completely, it's completely known. And I think even as we look at our current culture today of young people that are like, I, I think that they are looking for God. I think what they aren't looking for is religion. They aren't looking for something fake. They're looking for something real. Give them something real. Give them something real. So, the fear of the Lord's realized, the name of the Lord's on high honor. Verse 18, it says, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed 
what they'd done. Let me read that again. I, I just want you to see this. As revival is sweeping through, as the fear of the Lord comes, and as, as the, the name of the Lord is held in high honor, look at what happens next. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. Another, another sign of revival is the confession of sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So when the Holy Spirit is, begins working on someone's life, all of a sudden we find that shame is replaced with freedom. Concealing is replaced with confession. This, this, this just all of a sudden happens. It wasn't like somebody was browbeating and saying, you know, you're going to go to hell unless you confess your sin. People willingly, when the Holy Spirit is there, there is freedom. And all of a sudden, confession isn't a place of shame, guilt, and condemnation. It is a place of freedom. And they start bringing up and confessing their sin and confessing the things that they had done. Can I just, can I just be honest with you? Confession of sin is essentially choosing to embarrass sin before sin embarrasses you. That's it. If you're going to give a definition of confession of sin, it is choosing, and it is a willful choice to embarrass sin before sin embarrasses you. It's deciding, you know what, I could sit here and, and, and just try to hide this thing, conceal it, make sure nobody sees it and, and stand in front of it because I, I'm, I'm afraid of the shame that I might get, or I'm just going to put this out in the front and I'm going to show it out in the light and I'm going to embarrass it before it embarrasses me. I'm going to confess my sin. Why? Because it has no hold on me. It has no hold on me. But it didn't stop there. I just, it, it, this, is, this is what's happening in Ephesus. But I just need you to see this. It didn't just stop there. Because confession is not the same as repentance. This is huge. And for maybe some of you, if you're kind of new to this Christianity thing, it's important for us to realize that confession of sin is not the same as repentance of sin. Confessing sin is exposing Satan's, Satan's strategies but repenting of sin is disarming him. Let me say that again. Confession of sin is exposing his strategies, but repentance of sin is disarming him. Let me show, let me show you what, what it looks like, repentance looked like with these people in Ephesus. Verse 19, the very next verse. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they had calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. So what did repenting look like for them? Notice that it wasn't like, well, you know, I just, I didn't read my Bible much this week and I really need to start doing that. I need to get on a Bible reading plan. I just can't stick to one. Um, I really need to start praying more because I'm just, I don't know, I'm just not praying much. And that's, that's not what repentance looked like for them. They were literally turning away from their sin that they had been allowing in their life. Do you see that? It wasn't like, ah, I'm really sorry for this, or I'm going to go and I'm going to confess it. I've been doing this and I'm not really proud of it, but I'm just going to put it out there in the light. They were literally saying, that's not enough. I'm actually going to bring to a bonfire the things that I've been allowing in my life that I know have, have held me from getting closer to God. This, I mean, this is huge. They brought to the bonfire the strongholds that had a stronghold on them. 
And they weren't just sitting back saying, you know, this is something that I'm struggling with. They were like, I'm going to take this thing. I'm going I'm to throw it in the bonfire. Because a sign of revival here is when people begin to walk in repentance that costs them something. It cost them something. They were making incredibly hard decisions as they threw them into the bonfire. They weren't just sorry for it. They, they made it literally into a point of no return. When you take something that is near and dear to your heart that, has, that you've allowed in your life and you throw it in the bonfire, all of a sudden now, it, oh, not only does it have no hold on you, there's, no, there's, there's a point of no return. Like you, you can't go back to it now and say, well, I might go back to it tomorrow or when I'm having a rough day or when I need something. And it cost them. It was costly. So I was, I was looking it up. I was like, how much is 50,000 drachma? I don't know. Do you guys know? Like 50,000 drachma? You're like, I got, I got like three drachma. You know, nobody has drachma anymore, right? So like, I was like, how much is that like in present day? So I was looking it up. It's estimated, and this is, this is actually a conservative estimate. Some are a little bit higher. It's estimated to be about $5 million today. 50,000 drachma. If you're going to take it today. $5 million. So the people, the believers in Ephesus were coming to a bonfire that was roaring with $5,000 worth of stuff, things, scrolls, things, sins that they had allowed to be a part of their life. And I mean this out of love. I mean this out of uh, love as your pastor. I mean, I mean this, but I do mean this as a confrontation, a question. How serious are you about your sin? Like, to what degree are you willing to not just confess or be sorry about it, but to do something to remove it? from your life. What do you need to bring to the bonfire? Like, I, I know it's a struggle, and I know it's been a thing, and I know it's been a it's, a, it's this thing that's just kind of always been a part of you. You can even look back and started back then. And what do you need to bring to the bonfire? And you, maybe you think, well, I don't have any sorcery scrolls, Pastor Justin. Do Harry Potter books count, right? Like, <laughs> let me give you an example. Um, for me, I have a program called Covenant Eyes on every one of my devices. Why? Because I'm serious about not giving the devil a foothold of pornography in my life. So that's what it kind of looks like to me when, you know, when I'm throwing things on the bonfire. And, and if you're here and you're like, well, you know what? Like, how much does that cost, Pastor Justin? Is it five, $5 a month? I don't know if I can afford $5 a month for the protection of me and my family members. Then I would, cons I would, I would, I would tell you that you need to throw your device in the bonfire. That's just for me. Like, that's, that's just an example. Because for you, it's something different. For me, that's, 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 that's it for me, Right? What are the things that you need to just bring to the bonfire and say, I'm, I'm unwilling to allow this to be a part of my life anymore. I'm unwilling for it to still Time and time again. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I love how it says that. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Listen, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what that is for you, like, but I bet you do. And I bet Jesus would tell you if you asked him. <laughs> You're like, I know, I don't want to ask him. Right? I mean, there's a reality there. I, I understand it, guys. Like, I, I get it. I'm just saying, like, could it be that the reason we do not see the revival that we're hoping for is because we are, have been unwilling to be serious about our sin? Could, could it be? And, and, and bring some stuff to the bonfire. So no, I don't have a roaring bonfire in the parking lot. I'm not saying like, hope you brought your stuff, right? I'm not saying that. I, I am saying like, I hope, that, I hope that you go home today. I hope that, I hope that you, you consider this and realize that like, man, I, I, I don't know how serious I've been about rooting some stuff out of my own life. Why don't you stand with me? Verse 20 kind of sums it up for me this last verse that we read. And, 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 and I want you to just focus on the first three words of this sentence. It says, in this way. What way? The way that we've just been talking about. What are you talking about? Well, uh, all the things that, that just made up Acts chapter 19, verse 17, 18, 19. We get to 20. It says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. One of the signs of revival is that the word of God was followed by power. It spread widely because the church isn't a building, it is a movement. It is a movement of people who have found freedom and forgiveness in Christ. It is a movement of people who are continually surprised by what God dares to do through them. It is a movement of people who do not fear man. Why? Because they're too busy being in awe of what God's doing. It is a movement of people who will not shut up about Jesus. It is a movement of people who confess their sin quickly. Why? Because it has no hold on them. It is a movement of people who are willing to bring a sacrifice that costs them something. A sacrifice of praise. Why? Because they know that nothing compares to the greatness of knowing Christ. So if you're looking for a recipe for revival, maybe that's it. I don't like that recipe. <laughs> Sounds hard. Sounds like I got to put something into it, right? Like, church, it's not going to come through doing what we've always done. It's not going to come through an incantation or viewing the name of Jesus as a magic word. It comes only. The only power that we have is through our relationship with God. It says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 
I was reading about some past revivals. I was reading about the Welsh revival in the early 1900s. God just began to move and to break out in the country of Wales, and there's no real good reason for it. Like, it just started happening. There's a couple key people that were maybe preachers that were involved in it, but like, God, it just swept through the entire country of Wales. And during the height of the revival, while thousands of people were coming to Jesus, football games were canceled or scheduled around services. During, during the peak of things, pubs were forced to close because nobody was just showing up. Like, nobody was showing up to the pub, right? So just, I guess we're going to shut down here. Even the, the, the crime rate for the entire country plummeted during this time. Can I just say, like, I, I long for a move of God that our culture cannot deny. I long for a move of God that we don't have to explain <laughs> that people just stand back in awe of God moving and, and there's not enough fog we can pump into a room. There's not enough band awesomeness that we can perform. There's not a, enough great speaking and orating that I could do, but God just shows up and changes the landscape. And so when I say, like, revival, I'm, I'm not talking about scheduled revival meetings under tents in churchyards. I'm talking about an unmistakable, undeniable, culture-shifting, stronghold-freeing move of God that man cannot orchestrate or create or manipulate, but only steward. As we go on this adventure of just like, I, God, I just, you just keep showing up. You keep surprising me. As we look at the Welsh Revival, there was a, there was a, a pastor. He's, he's kind of the guy, the, the lightning rod of the, of the movement. His name was Evan Roberts. And um, Evan was known to pray this one prayer, and it was very simple. Lord, bend me. Bend me. We're going to end with a worship song today, and this is what I want to encourage you to do. Maybe, maybe if you don't even know what to pray, because some of us were like, I, I just don't know how to pray. And I hear people pray, but I just don't know the words, and I don't know the right things to say. Maybe your prayer today is as simple as the spark that lit the revival that changed an entire country. How about that? <laughs> Lord, bend me. Just, would you start with me? Would you just, would you just bend me? Would you take this frail, flawed person and bend me. Begin with me. So what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about today? Maybe, you know, maybe you're like, it's like you need to get serious about your sin. Maybe you need to confess something. Maybe you need to start a bonfire. Uh, maybe, maybe you simply just need to say, but Lord, I, I pray that you'd bend me. I want to encourage you as we sing today. Whatever that means for you. Maybe you get out of your seat. Maybe you come down here front. Maybe, maybe like this, this guy, not waiting for everybody else to, who's going to go first? Just say, God, would you just bend me? Would you take this and all the stuff that's not of you? I pray that you just root it out. And anything that is of you, God, it's the only thing that I want. 
So pray, God, I pray that you would bend me, make me, mold me, break me so that I'd look more like you and make way for the coming revival that we so desperately are hoping for. May we get real with you today. So as we sing, whatever, whatever you feel led to do, I just want to encourage you, kind of find your place. You want to get on your knees at your seat. You want to sit down. You want to come up front, whatever that is. I just pray that you would, you would just lift up the name of Christ, that it would be held in high honor today. Amen? Let's worship him together, church.